Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Has this ever happened to you? I'm, I'm, I go out to the shops. I go to Cotton On, buy my goods. And as I buy my goods, the girl at the counter says, would you like a bottle of water? If you buy this bottle of water, then it's going to help build a school over in Africa. All right, I have a bottle of water. And then I go to the body shop. And I go to the body shop and I buy, buy the moisturiser and they say, well, would you like to make a donation? The donation from this is going to go to help build orphanages in Indonesia. All right, I'll make a donation. Then I go to Grilled up in Crow's Nest. I go and try and buy a burger and they said, look, if you take the lid of your drink and pop it in this box here, just choose whatever local cause you want to and uh, we're going to donate uh, a portion of that drink to that particular cause. Now, I'm thinking to myself... What is, it, what is the world coming to? When can't a man just go and buy a pair of undies, eat a burger, moisturise with his coconut-infused body butter <laughs> without having to change the world? And we laugh. We laugh, but here's the thing that gets me. Is it just me or at the moment... Is the secular world, is the corporate world doing justice better than the church? Because last time I checked, no one should ever out-justice a Christian. (laughs) Not because it's a competition, not because we're any better than them, but because we should have, as we'll see in this next four-week series, a deeper why. A deeper reason for doing good. A different reason for reaching out to those who are in need or more vulnerable than we. And so when we read from James chapter 2, and James says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied with actions, is dead. And what he's saying in that, and what we've got to be really clear, there are, there are some verses in the Bible, that, don't you find? There are some verses in the Bible that you can't wriggle out from. <laughs> I hate those verses in the Bible. You know, the ones that, that wedge you right in that are either or, that you can't debate in your Bible study, and you can't say, well, we interpret it this way because I'm a Presbyterian, and I interpret it this way because I'm a Pentecostal. I, there's no interpretation about this particular passage. James says this, A life lived of deeds of justice and mercy to those different from you are not the things that save you. Instead, what he's saying is that if you call yourself a Christian, if you say that you have faith in God, then these things, the great litmus test of your faith is these things should overflow. You should be doing this. Are you? I could have picked an easier sermon topic to preach on, I think. <laughs> Not because this is theological, theologically different, but um, because God always puts me what I, through what I call the theological tough mudder course. I, I know the answer to that question because I know the way I would answer that question. And the great wrestle that I've got in this is when I come up against passages like that, I go, I don't do this enough 
It doesn't overflow in my life. And here's where we see the problem when it comes to Christians and practicing justice. That's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. Rethinking social justice. Why Christians should be out justicing the body shop. The problem here, as one commentator says, is he says you could make a good argument that our problem in society is not that people don't know that they should share with others and help the poor. Most people do know and most people believe this. The real problem is that, while knowing it, they are insufficiently motivated to actually do it. So the question is, why don't we do it? Why aren't we motivated to do this? Why, at least in my life, is this not overflowing all the time? And let me throw a couple of reasons at you. Again, I'm only ever preaching a sermon to you that I've preached to myself, so I'll give you my reasons. Maybe they, they might apply to you, I'm not sure. Here's the first one of of my two reasons in terms of why I think Christians don't do this. The first one is the mindset that says this is just for the justice types. I was brought up, I I was educated at Knox Grammar School (laughs) in the upper north shore of Sydney. Right, So I was raised in a conservative culture that said, look, things like justice, you know, that is... Well, that's for, that's for the types that have dreadlocks, that padlock themselves to tractors, that sit in the foyer of Parliament House. Uh, that's what justice is. They're the people that do that. Those on the left-hand side of the spectrum, they're the ones that do all the justice stuff. In, in simple words, we, we reduce particularly the conservative social justice to a side of the political spectrum, don't we? We confuse biblical justice for activism. And you say, I'm, I'm not a justice type. I'm not the one to padlock myself to something. Why do we think like that? Why do Christians think like that? Now, Ken Wistmer in his book, Pursuing Justice, has a fascinating overview of the history of social justice. I'll summarize it for you so I don't have to read the book. It's what you pay me for. He says, uh, the, this apparent uh, divide between what seems the left and the right, between the activism and the theological conservatives, came out of the rise of what he calls the social gospel in the 1800s. And so it's when Christians began to see the great inequity that was happening in society and the poor class, and when they saw that by, 1900s in, by 1900 in the USA, that there was something like 1.75 million children under the age of 15 working in dangerous jobs. The Christians of the time saw that and said, this is unacceptable. And they grabbed every activist-style statement from Jesus in the Bible and said, if we are Christians, then we need to do something about this. And so what happened, he says, was the the great liberal-conservative divide in Christianity, where on the left-hand side over here, that the liberal Christians were the ones that did the activism and all the doing, and on the right-hand side over here, the conservatives were the ones, the theologians, that did all the thinking. There was justice, and then there was evangelism. And he says that divide was never supposed to happen. And that gave rise because of this social gospel. Now, when I think of it that way, let me ask you a question. Where would you put Jesus into all of this? I mean, this this is a guy who reads the Isaiah Scrolls and says, I've come to preach the good news to the poor, to set the captives free. 
And then at the same time, this is the same guy who says, I haven't come to abolish the law. In fact, I've come to fulfill it. Not the least stroke of a pen, not the littlest dot of the eye will disappear from this. I mean, this sounds like a guy who on one hand is for the left and for the right. Which way is he? He's both. And I don't know about you, but the more that you read the scriptures, the more you get to see God's heart, the more that you understand the gospel for this conservative upper North Shore young guy raised in that culture is that I find the more that I read into the scriptures, the more that, that the actions of God push me to this side of the spectrum. I can't escape it. But so could it be that, could it be, I don't know, that the gospel actually transcends the left and the right side of politics? That this is not a political issue? And as Wistmer says, politics is an easy way to talk about causes that require nothing more from me than checking a box on a ballot sheet. The gospel, however, cannot be reduced in such a way. God is relentlessly relational and he expects his children to be as well. If we follow Jesus, then we will be led, regardless of our political views, into social situations that are uncomfortable, difficult or costly. So justice is not just for the justice types. Here's, here's my other thing. Maybe it applies to you. Here's, here's my other thinking and part of the reason why I think we Christians struggle to be motivated to do justice. We look at the problems of the world and we say, this problem is too big for me to fix. Therefore, if I can play no significant part, then why play a part at all? If you talk about making poverty history. How can we make poverty history? I'm not going to bother. I don't know how to end sex trafficking, so I'm not going to get involved. It wasn't it our own Graham Innes, Australia's former disability commissioner and discrimination commissioner that said to us last week, did he not? That God is not looking for the big miracles, but the small miracles. Those moments in each of our lives in which we take responsibility for the smallest thing that we can do in light of all that we're facing. So you have justice is for the justice types. Another reason, there's many more, by the way. Another reason could be, oh, it's too big, too hard to get involved. You know what? I think there's a dynamic that we see in God. If we, if we see God's heart and we see the dynamic in him that solves both of these problems. And, and it's, it's, it's bound up in how we rethink what justice means let me ask you what do you think the average person thinks of justice could they think of it this way or i think we almost always think of it as an individual's rights justice is freeing individuals from the constructions of the group it's freeing individuals to do whatever they want no matter what the group says but biblical justice has a different trajectory biblical justice is different biblical justice is wrapped up in a concept called shalom some of you know it or heard of it. We translate it simply as, as peace, as the peace of God. But it's so much more than peace. It's a nuanced peace. It's an interwoven peace. Neil Plantinger, a theologian, theologian, puts it like this. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. That is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We translate it peace, but it means a lot more than that. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. 
a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed under, under the overarching arc of God's love. Shalom, in simple terms, is God's way of saying this is how things were meant to be. Beautiful, interdependent, interwoven relationship, equitable relationship with humanity. Threads, it's a, it's a tapestry. If I chuck a bunch of strings down on the ground, that's not a tapestry. The only thing that makes it a tapestry is each thread has a place and it's woven in next to each other, bound to each other according to the maker's design. God says that's how life was meant to be. And when that unraveled is the great biblical story. When that relationship with me unraveled, then someone pulled a thread. And in the great tapestry that is humanity, suddenly there are clumps here and clumps there and missing pieces here. And it's no longer as he intended it to be. Now, here's the, the gospel, the story of the Bible in a nutshell. God intended the world to be good. God intended us to live in shalom. God intended us to be woven into tapestry, interdependent, equitable relationship with one another. When our relationship with him unraveled, all of humanity unravels. And now there is great inequity and there seems to be no fix to the problem. And then he sends his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to serve the world and to start putting things right as he walks through the Judean countryside and starts a revolution and a movement called Christianity that he says, I'm not going to be with you, but I will send you out to go and do these deeds of love and justice and mercy. And he sends his people out in the world until such a time that God will come back. And as Revelation says, there will be no more tear, there will be no more crying, and once and for all, everything will be put right. Now, friend, if you see this story, Christian, if you see this story, what it says that if God is doing all of this, if God is the one that is putting the world right, and if God is the one that in Jesus was putting the world right, and if Jesus sends his people out to put the world right, then justice simply means this. To put things right where you are. doesn't necessarily mean to fly to Africa or to Indonesia to, do an, or to build an orphanage, but to put things right where you are. So if, if that's God's story, he's using his people to put things right where they are, the question now is how do I start? How do I start? You start like this. I can't stand friends. Not you guys. We're, we're all friends. I'm in the TV show. I can't stand the TV, Ross and Phoebe and Chandler and all that. Monica, is that the other one? All those types. I can't stand friends, but I love friends. It's a weird paradox in all of this. I can't stand it, but I love it. Part of the reason why I love it is, well, the primary reason why I love it is because Kristen loves it. I've learned to come to love friends. I can't say I necessarily like friends, but I come to love friends because Kristen loves friends. Now... Here's how you start doing justice. You may say that you're not the justice type. You may say it's not your gig. You may even say it's not your gifting, which is a whole other way of thinking. But here's how you start. You learn to love what God loves. And where I've been challenged in studying for this and preparing for this service is it is inescapable 
that when you read through the 3,000-something scriptures that God talks about his love for people, more often than not, it's for the great quartet that is the orphans, the widows, the poor, and the vulnerable. And so in any great relationship, a love relationship with someone, which is what we should have with God, right? Even if it's not your gig, (laughs) the way that you love that person is you begin to love what they love. So you may say, I'm not a justice type. Well, you can learn to love what he loves. Here's the second thing that you can do. You've got to see the image. Not only learn to love what he loves, but see the image. Genesis chapter 126 says that we're... Every human being is made in God's image. It says, so God, verse 27, created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And what does being made in his image mean? It connotates that every human being is a work of art. Every person is a work of art. You've heard me quote C.S. Lewis, there are no mere mortals That every person, there is a beauty inside of them that if they stood in front of the mirror and saw their true self, they would be at risk of falling down and worshipping themselves. And what, what the Bible says to us is that every person in society, every person in humanity, no matter who they are, are made in his image. That there is an irreducible beauty about them that there is an irreducible sacredness about them because there is a seed of God planted in every human being. Which is part of our why, isn't it? Because if there is no, if there is no creation, if there is no seed of God in every human being, then we've got no real reason to want to do justice and love and mercy to anyone who is different from us. They're just a bunch of atoms floating around the sun, right? But... If they are the created image of God, then it means that there is a right attached to every person in the world to not be mistreated. It's like this. It's like, it's like why, do, why do we Australians get so caught up in that tomb of the unknown soldier down in, down in Canberra? I mean, can you imagine if someone came in there and graffitied it? mucked up all the stonework there'd be an outrage wouldn't there now the unknown the unknown soldier is not alive and living in that moment but because that was something that represents the unknown soldier then there is there is great significance and there is great care attributed to that which represents who they are and so when we see a person, part of God's creation, we treasure that person because of the way that ultimately we as Christians would treasure God. If God loves them, then we too shall love them. And so look, getting practically practical as we finish this morning could mean a couple of key things. Remember, justice is not just for the justice type. I think this is it's coming out of the, what I've realized in this overarching theme that we talk about witnessing. We talk about fireflies being witnesses, the light of the world. We've talked about that all year. And I've come to realize that in the very same section of Scripture that where Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he says, let your good deeds shine before men so that they might glorify your Father in heaven. And don't we see now the ultimate balance in Jesus Christ yet again of 
evangelism and mercy, of witness and mercy. It's not one or the other. It's both. Both are like two little birdies on a baby's mobile. There should be a perfect balance of these things. Or it doesn't do its job. So it's not just for the justice types. The world, and not only that, the world expects this as a church, right? Can you believe it? Some of the feedback from, you know, we did those cards in Easter. The cards in Easter where we invited someone to church. We got a great response out of that. We gave it to the coffee shop and they distributed it to people in the community. And, and we blessed them with a coffee and said, maybe you might want to come to church. We got some great feedback. We got some other interesting feedback as well. One of the bits of feedback was, why is the church giving me this coffee? Shouldn't they be giving it to the poor? The world expects this from us. And if we're to be witnesses for Jesus, it's not just about being light and sharing our faith. It must be accompanied by deeds. Not just for the justice types. Here's the other one. Just start where you are. Where you are. That passage in James. Look, we've got four weeks to do this. I said there's something like 3,000 different verses you can use to talk about justice in the Bible. <laughs> I've just used one because it sums the whole lot up in many ways. James says, what good is it if you look at your brother and sister who is next to you at the time and do nothing about it? And you know what that does? That negates the other challenge that we have if we say the problem's too big. Because what James says to us is paraphrased by the preacher Andy Stanley when he says, when you are faced with a problem that you think is too big for you to solve, then do this. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Can you do that? Are you doing that? Let me ask you, are you feeling slightly guilty yet? <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, where are you? Yeah, and look, the great risk is we, we I've got to ask it because we preachers can do this all the time, make you feel guilty about it, but we know that to, to make you feel guilty about something is just a pour petrol on the fire. I don't know, it might evoke a response in you until about coffee time, and we'll go home and forget. <laughs> I want to put, what, what I want to put to you this morning is that we need a motivation that is far deeper than any guilt or sense that, oh, I don't do this enough. You won't do justice rightly if you think that this is another thing that you need to add to your Christian task list. How do we change our thinking on this? Well, I think it comes down to our thinking of the, the modern Western person. When they think about helping the poor or the needy, how do we think of it? Under what heading do we think of it? We think of it under charity, don't we? If we're to help the poor, then... Then it's charity. If I don't do this, then um, I need to give more or I need to do more volunteering. I need to do that. But that's not how the Bible sees it. You know the way that I'm seeing the Bible see, seeing injustice? The beginning of injustice from a biblical perspective starts with the thought pattern that says, my resources are mine. The fastest way you can get to a biblical understanding of justice is to think of this. There are thousands of kids out in Sydney today, this morning, that struggle with reading and writing and numeracy. They're the kids at those schools that tell them in the NAPLAN to just take a sick day 
They're the ones that are coming from broken backgrounds. And they're on a trajectory that by the time they're 17 or 18, they can't read or write. There's no skills. Life is a dead end. Now, why? The old-fashioned left-hand side of the politics would say, well, it's because the system's failed them and it's systematic racism. And the conservative side of the spectrum would say, well, there's not enough self-application and it's the family's fault. Which way is it? Nowadays, and I think it's pretty good, we're getting a little bit more nuanced, is maybe it's a bit of both. But here's the one thing, whether it's the left side or the right side or the new middle-of-the-ground approach, no one says that it's the kid's fault, that it's the 10, 11, 12-year-old's fault. None of them says it's their fault. Maybe it was their family, maybe it was the system, but there's one thing, it's not their fault. It's not their fault that they were born into the family that they were born or where they were born or the circumstances that they were born. If they're born into my family at the moment or the blessings that we've got, maybe they'd have about 300 more times chance of succeeding in life. But we have to understand and we see and we know that there is a great disparity even in our own city. Why? Because when it comes down to it, the breakdown of shalom that we see in the practical sense is that the reality of life says that there is an inequitable distribution of resources in the world. And so in many ways, it's not their fault. It can happen in Africa too, but it happens here. And here's what hit me when I was reading through this this week. Therefore, if you are a person that is blessed with the resources... If you are a person who has been gifted by we as Christians, let's be real, by God's grace with the resources, to not share those resources with those in need is not just stinginess, but it is injustice. That's what God says. That's the reason why if you go to the Old Testament... You'll constantly see the context of the righteous and the wicked. And in researching this word for justice, I saw the word righteous mixed in there for the first time in a very weird way. Because the Old Testament, the English translation of the Old Testament word for justice is mishpat, which means justice. And the Old Testament will tell you this, that a righteous person is one who sees his or her resources as belonging to the whole human community. Whereas a wicked person is a person who sees his or her resources belonging to him or her alone. A just person, can't you see church? A just person is someone who gets the dead cat principle. Two worms fall from the sky. One into a crack in the concrete and another one into the dead cat. Five days later, malnourished on the verge of death, the worm in the concrete says to the worm in the dead cat, please, sir, tell me the secret of your success. And the worm in the dead cat says, well, um, hard work and a sound strategic vision. <laughs> we know comparatively we've fallen into a dead cat. And the thing that is rattling me this week, church, is that to not do something with that is not just stinginess, not just listening to what God has to say to us, it's injustice. It's a contribution to injustice. Because the wicked person says, this is mine, my precious. 
So if, if as we finish, if the problem to begin with, this has all just been an overhead transparency, right, for the next four weeks. The primary reason that we may not do justice is because we lack the motivation to do it. Is it maybe because we see that it's a political issue or that the problem's too big? And if, maybe if, we see that God is a God who loves those who are orphaned, the widowed, those on the edge of society, if we then learn to love what he loves and to see each person who is in need as someone made in his own image, and if we see that he sent his son Jesus Christ to make this right in the world, and if we see that as his followers we are called to do the same, then I need to ask you this morning, how would it change the way that you would look at your week this week if you came to realize that God is not necessarily calling you to make poverty history this week, but to simply put things right where you are. James says, suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food, you see them, and if you just say to them, Go in peace. Keep warm and well fed. You do nothing about it. What good is it? And he was echoing the words of one of history's great philosophers, Michael Jackson, who said, I've been a victim of a selfish kind of love, and it's time that I realize that there is some with no home, not a nickel alone. Could it be really me pretending that they're not alone? I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, then take a look at yourself and make a change. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have been speaking to us in this moment. I'm just praying now as we're coming to this time of ministry that you're, you're laying thoughts and ideas, you're opening spiritual eyes, you're putting things in our minds as we're beginning to project into what our week could look like. All I could pray for this morning, Father, that in this place there is, as the first step of all that we would go through, an opening of eyes this morning, Father. That we would see, we'd be a people that see what is happening around us. At the same time, that we would have a confidence, Father, as the people of the now but, but not yet, the in-between, that there are great injustices going on in the world. One of them may very well be that 80 people have lost their lives in Kabul. In Afghanistan, and the reality is maybe that's going to get half the amount of media attention as an attack in France this week. Father, there are problems out there that seem insurmountable and far big, too big for any of us to do anything about. But Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit you would guide us and open our eyes to the ways in which we each can put things right where we are. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. 
If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.